welcome to the CAA Drone Safety Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Drone Safety Podcast from the UK Civil Aviation Authority. I'm Jonathan Nicholson from the communications team, and today it's quite a groundbreaking episode, I guess, of something that a lot of the commercial larger drone operators have been looking for for quite some time to be able to do in the UK. And that is a version of everyday beyond visual line of sight flying. Now, standard rules for UK and most of the world drone flying is that in most cases, the person flying the drone has to be able to physically see the drone. That's because they need to be able to separate it from other things that are flying particularly low-flying other aircraft, military helicopters, military fast jets, small private aircraft, balloons, hang gliders, emergency helicopters such as air ambulances and police helicopters. All of these things are operating right down to ground level. So we need to be able to safely separate drones from other aircraft. So that's why that kind of visual line of sight requirement has always been in place. But a breakthrough for a lot of operations that people want to do with drones would be that ability to do scalable, routine, beyond visual line of sight operations. And I'm pleased to say we're joined today by Callum Holland from the CIA's drone and innovation teams. And Callum's going to talk us through a new consultation that we're just putting out that will actually, hopefully, set that in place. So, hi, Callum. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? Really excited to be here and talk about what is, you know, flagship policy from, from a, a future of flight perspective. Yeah, I mean, it really is something that we've been working through for a while and industry is looking for. So this actual sort of version of BV loss, uh, beyond visual line of sight flying, is called an atypical air environment. And lots of people may not have heard about that or might not be 100% sure what it is. So can you explain to us what that is, please? Yeah, of course. I, I mean, first, to sort of pick apart some of the challenges of, of this journey towards routine, scalable, beyond visual line of sight operations. The UK has always been really clear. We, we want integration. We, we don't want to sort of continue what we've been doing up until this point of, of segregating UAS from conventional aviation. We want to get in a place where we are all, all integrated and sharing the airspace safely. One of the key challenges with that, especially in the short term, is kind of an absence of both cooperative and non-cooperative detect and avoid systems. You know, we're looking at now a scaled adoption of electronic conspicuity, which is going to help feed into that. And of course, within control volumes of airspace, sort of improvements and advancements in air traffic management service provisions to integrate UAS into all volumes of airspace. Now, that's a journey we're going on, and we're working incredibly hard on it. We, we all are, but both as a regulator, but as an industry as well. But what can we do practically in the meantime? to get innovators operating beyond visual line of sight in an integrated way where we are impacting as little as reasonably practicable other air users. And this is where the concept of an atypical air environment comes in. So it's a really quick sort of recognition that this is not about creating a separate classification of airspace. It's a recognition that there are certain volumes of airspace across the UK that due to their proximity to certain sort of pieces of ground infrastructure, that might be a railway, it might be a power line, might be a building, that you're less likely to encounter conventionally piloted aviation. It's not an absolute, it's just less likely. 
And we can use that less likely, and we've done sort of modeling on this and, and, and really in-depth risk assessments to date internally, as well as involving external stakeholders on this. We can use that sort of principle of you're less likely to encounter conventional aviation to allow a UAS to operate beyond visual line of sight with some additional mitigations on top of it, which we'll talk about. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. So this is something we're just about to consult on. And I, I particularly come back to your point there about integration rather than segregation, because we are a small country with a small amount of airspace and an awful lot of airspace users doing all very different things at different heights, different purposes, and with varying levels of equipment. And I think it's always worth remembering that when we talk about integration and wanting to do that, we don't have the space to segregate all these people out. So what specifically are we consulting on? So you mentioned, obviously, there will be the atypical principle is that these are drones operated very close to the thing that they're probably looking at inspecting to reduce the risk. But what other elements of the consultation is there? Yeah, so this is really exciting. We are consulting on our entire proposed policy position on the adoption and recognition of an atypical air environment. So it's currently a 12-page document. It outlines not only what would be reasonably considered or may reasonably be considered an atypical air environment. We talk about some of the, the challenges of operating within one, some additional considerations that an operator might need to employ as well as some additional risk mitigations that we would expect to be used when operating within an atypical air environment. On top of that, it's also a, a consultation, not just for those that will use atypical air environments, but for stakeholders that might be impacted by the use of atypical air environments, so other air users. So you know, we've already touched on them, you know, the military, the police, search and rescue, GA. There's a whole suite of stakeholders that will be impacted to some degree by the adoption of this policy, and we're really keen to get their views. Now, that doesn't mean in the process of developing this policy, it's been done in the absence of those views. Now is the time to consult the entire community, those that are going to utilise atypical and those that might be impacted as a result of its adoption. And that's really what we're consulting on. So, so we have the, the, the policy. What we're consulting on is what we intend to adopt. We'll run this for six weeks reflect on the comments, hopefully with the intention of some point in, in the near future, formally adopting the policy so people can begin using it. Yeah, perfect. That would be great. So apart from the airspace angle, which is obviously really important, is there anything in the consultation specifically about what would be potentially required for the people flying the drone and also the drone itself? Yeah, so we have, I don't think this will come as a surprise to many, really complex, very populated airspace within the United Kingdom. On top of that, where we have you know, the standardised European rules of the air, specifically our minimum height requirements, you know, SARA 5005F, we have authorised and permitted deviation from those minimum height requirements outlined within ORS 4 1496, I believe. So we have lower level airspace where we can have lots of other air users and we've already touched on them including general aviation including the military the police search and rescue as well as others so very congested airspace because of that relying on this principle of operating close to infrastructure alone 
doesn't suitably mitigate the risk. So we have a residual risk that we need to mitigate with, with additional mitigations. So what we're proposing, first of all, I point out this is policy guidance. So it's not prescriptive. We're putting out there what we think might be reasonable for an operator to consider that might support them in getting an operational authorization to operate BV loss within an atypical air environment. An operator, as is the case for any safety case, is free to propose their views, and it will be for the CAA to assess that. So our guidance is suggesting that the operator adopts a form of electronic conspicuity, so monitoring. We already have our joint statement published between the DFT and the CAA on operating you know, ADSB 1090, as well as sort of 978 from an RPAS perspective. So we've put some guidance in there about how we would want the operator to consider utilizing electronic conspicuity. Because of some additional concerns with operating beyond visual line of sight, outside of segregated airspace, within controlled airspace, we would also require a form of coordination from the relevant air traffic control service provider. On top of that, we've had some residual concerns from a couple of the stakeholders who might not be able to interrogate electronic conspicuity that might be operating at a very low level. And their proposal was that they would support the adoption of high-intensity anti-collision lighting on board the UA to help in the visual conspicuity of the UA for those other air users. So there's some guidance in there around the adoption and recognition of high-intensity anti-collision lighting used on board the UA. And many operators that are flying beyond visual line of sight today will be well aware of that. And the other consideration within the policy guidance is at containment of the UA. So if we are relying on operating within an atypical air environment as being the primary mitigation against the mid-air collision risk, we need to be reasonably assured that the aircraft is going to stay within the scope of that operational volume and is not going to stray outside the bounds of it. And therefore, you know, containment needs to be addressed. So whatever that might be, an onboard you know, software-based geocaging function, for example, it's for the operator to propose, but we would like to see something like that. Because fundamentally, what we're trying to enable here is a form of scaled beyond visual line of sight activity outside of segregated airspace with the absence of a requirement for detect and avoid function, and therefore staying within that operational volume is critical. So there are sort of high-level recommendations within the policy document. As I said, that's what the UKCA might reasonably be expected to see from an operator in the submission of a safety case. But that doesn't mean there are going to be certain areas where the mitigations need to be increased. There might be scope to flex them. In other places, it really depends on the specific operational volume where the operator intends to fly. Yeah, that sounds absolutely sensible. And we have to keep remembering that although we absolutely want this to happen and we want to enable all the innovation, safety comes first and it always will. And we need to make sure that all users are safe. So it sounds very sensible. So obviously a lot of users also operate in other nations. So Compared to other countries, is our atypical proposal different? Is it more restrictive? How do we fit in with the rest of the world in this area? Yeah, so I think initially within the policy document, we're going to propose 
what might be reasonably expected to be considered an atypical air environment. And I'll give those figures to you now. It's within 30 metres or 100 feet of any building or structure. It's within 15 metres or 50 feet of any permanent linear structure, you know, for example, a railway or a power line. And then the third one is within the confines of private property at a height not exceeding 15 metres, which is 50 feet, where you have the permission of the landowner. So the example there is sort of perimeter inspection and security. I think initially that will appear pretty restrictive, just sort of being transparent there. We have significant challenges within the UK, you know, specifically pertaining to where we've authorised and permitted other air users to operate in that low-level airspace, so you know, within ORS 41496. Therefore, that, including the fact that this is the first time we're doing this in a scaled way, so we've got a journey to go on in terms of how this policy is used, how it's adopted, how it's implemented by industry, I think we are beginning from a conservative position and we'll look to expand sort of beyond that as things get used. We learn more both as a regulator and as industry. So initially, I think the, it will be considered conservative in terms of how our definitions compare and contrast to other countries around the world. There are countries and national aviation authorities that have less prescriptive adaptations of an atypical air environment. And that's because their airspace is different. It's not as congested. There might not be the authorization and permission to deviate from the standard European rules of the air like we have in the UK. So that's the rationale why. We've come to these distances and these conclusions in this position after it's about 18 months of internal work, including sort of select members of industry and not just sort of the drone community, also other air users. Some really detailed assessment of the data, assessment of the overall risk picture, and listening to those stakeholders has led us to these distances. So we're happy that initially, although may appear conservative, our distances that we can manage the risk of, like I said, to other air users to prevent that mid-air collision risk getting to an unacceptable level outside of segregated airspace in the absence of detect and avoid functioning. I guess my steer would be, we will move on from this as we learn together as a community, but both regulator and industry, as we have access to more enabling technologies, as we see a wider adoption of electronic conspicuity, for example, these figures may be able to be expanded on. But for now, I think the initial take will be, it seems a bit conservative, but it's better than what we've got now. That makes absolute sense. And, you know, as we say, there's, there's other airspace users involved here. If their situation changes with the technology they use, and we always say we keep all our regulations under constant review to make sure they're, they're fit for purpose. So, that's a process that we would put in place anyway as, as time goes on and things change. So even if they are slightly conservative, and again, safety comes first. So there's going to be some big advantages here for operators of things they can go and do on an everyday basis that they can't do now. Um, I wondered if you could you know, give us an example or a couple of examples of things where you think people would be able to go and 
do if this comes to fruition, which we hope it will after the consultation? What can they do that they, an example, they can't do now? Yeah, so this is where things get really exciting for me as having spent time in industry working on beyond visual line of sight projects. It's really difficult for me personally not to get sort of overexcited about this because I can sort of see the, the value it's going to bring to organizations and sort of the industry that, that, that's going to open up as a result of it. So beyond the obvious, you know, utilizing infrastructure like power lines and railways, you clearly have the inspection element there. So the survey and inspection of those pieces of infrastructure. You're also, from a perhaps a railway perspective, going to enable industry to scale their activities around the spraying of things like weed killer to clear the railway lines. On top of that, when we talk about drone delivery, be that consumer goods or healthcare, you can use the atypical policy and the recognition of atypical air environments to sort of transit your aircraft. So perhaps you're operating between two hospitals. Well, if there's a power line that runs between the two of them and you can get into that atypical air environment and out of the atypical air environment in an appropriate way, well, you can transit that aircraft, you know, across the power line or across the railway with the appropriate permissions and, and everything else that we've already begun to talk about. So I think we're going to begin seeing sort of a scaled use of that type of activity as well. So this isn't just about enabling survey inspection, which it absolutely is. I think there's also a lens here around delivery, both consumer and medical and other applications as well. The other really interesting one too, we've seen a lot of technological development around sort of drone in the box solutions, where you can have a drone on a particular site and you know, with some level of automated function can conduct things like perimeter inspections. So actually not flying particularly far away from its sort of takeoff location and perhaps the remote pilot, but operating over an environment that, that would be considered beyond the visual line of sight of the remote pilot. Well, you know, we've put some consideration in there that if you're operating at height not, not exceeding 15 meters and you have the permission of the landowner, and the reason that the permission is important is because that will support some deconfliction ensuring that if there's a field that a GA uh, user isn't going to come and land in it because it's also used to sort of, you know, it's an unlicensed aerodrome perhaps. Or there might be conventionally piloted rotary operations taking place. And actually, there's a helicopter landing site sort of on the other side of the property. This is why the permission element is important. So let's say you have sort of security individuals with this drone in the box capability. The potential is that they can operate these perimeter checks with this drone in the box solution beyond visual line of sight without having to go through you know, segregated airspace and everything else that comes with that. It's quite probable that they can operate that under an atypical air environment. So I think it's going to open up a whole swathe of industry, not just to new applications, but beginning to realize and scale existing applications that are just waiting for a piece of policy like this. Yeah. Uh, and there's some really exciting stuff there that people could get out and do. So. Although they're quite restrictive for sort of distances and heights, etc., I'm assuming that we've spoken about other airspace users. There's going to be some impact on those as well, and that's why we're keen that they respond to this consultation as well. Could we talk about that for a bit? Absolutely. So, of course, we need to hear back from the community that are going to be using this policy. So, the UAS community, we need to hear back what they think. 
what they think is appropriate, what they think perhaps isn't appropriate, and listen from their experiences. What we're also acutely aware of is that this policy will have an impact on the use of airspace for other air users. So you know, the military, the police, search and rescue, general aviation, they are going to have to move into a space where they recognize that you may have a UAS operating outside of any airspace restriction or segregation beyond visual line of sight of the remote pilot within these atypical air environments. So it's going to have to be a journey for them to recognize that we're moving in this space. And that might form part of their risk assessment moving forward when they operate. So to get their views on how they think their operations are going to be impacted as a result of that is absolutely critical for this consultation. And that's something I think we're going to push um, really hard on to ensure that our responses aren't just from the community that are going to use this policy, but those that might be in, impacted as a result of the adoption of this policy. Yeah, and I think when those other users quite rightly respond, I think it's important as well they recognise what the limitations on the drone are. So, you know, you mentioned just how close it needs to be to the infrastructure or whatever it's, it's working with, and those are really tight, close distances, aren't they? So I think people, if they're responding as other airspace users, I think it's really important they recognise that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We are adopting new technologies, new ways of doing things. It is happening. A good example of that is in the sort of the UAS space. There are now ways of doing things with UAS that, that are societally beneficial, that are good for you know, the economy, can be conducted safely, can be conducted more efficiently, perhaps uh, with less cost of conventional techniques. So that is the direction we're heading. We want to do it in an integrated way where the impact to existing air users is mitigated as far as reasonably practicable. There is going to have to be an element of recognition and adoption by other air users. We're trying to do it in a way where the impact is minimized. So although there might be the additional burden, perhaps a strong word, for other air users to consider that, well, actually, I'm operating, I'm using this, this power line for navigation, you know, hopefully not at kind of the 50 feet that we're proposing, but we're using this power line for navigation. Actually, if I do see a UAS down there, that's now routine. It's allowed. And the CAA have properly thought through the risk and implications of enabling that technology, that, that, that movement of that UAS. And knowing that will feed into existing air users' risk assessment, how they think about things before they take off and during flights, and especially on sort of approach and landing. So getting their views, and, and to make clear, we've already canvassed a significant proportion of that community to get to the point where we are today prior to public consultation. So one of the other things is I wouldn't want any individual to think that this policy was written in isolation, this proposed policy was written in, in isolation of considering other air users. It wasn't. We have consulted other air users in the development of this. Now is just the right time to canvas it publicly and, and give everybody an opportunity to give their views. Excellent. And when it's live, it will be on our consultations website, which is consultations.caa.co.uk. And what happens then, Callum, as soon as it's live on there and the consultations run, what's the next steps? Yeah, so we're going to run it for six weeks. We think it's really important that we give the community enough time 
to digest it. It's not a long document. It's 12 pages, of which about six of that is substantive text. There is a period of reflection post-consultation where we review the comments that we've had. That really depends on how many comments we have, the, the nature of the comments on, on how long it will take to review them. But you know, all going well, best case scenario is those comments are listened to, reviewed, the policy is amended if appropriate, and then published and becomes formally adopted guidance within the UK for operators to utilize. What we will also be doing at the same time is running a bit of a comms campaign to get the message out there to other stakeholders that we will be doing this. One of the things we think is incredibly important with this policy, unlike other UAS policy around BV loss in the past, where it was predominantly focused on segregation, therefore, other than the fact that we are restricting the use of that airspace from other air users, which is a significant consideration for us, once the operation's live, other than the fact that other air users can't operate within that segregated volume of airspace, the safety risk is minimized. With atypical, this is integrated. It's not segregated. There is no detect and avoid function. So getting the message out there to other air users that this is the direction of travel we're heading in, we see as actually one of our main risk mitigations, awareness. Awareness itself is a mitigation to risk. So there will be a campaign that, that's targeting you know, general aviation, uh, military, police, search and rescue, and all of the other air users out there that may be operating in close proximity to an atypical environment. There's going to be a, a targeted comms campaign as well. So in summary, post-consultation, review the comments, reflect on the feedback, intention to publish as soon as we can in a safe way alongside a targeted sort of comms campaign to all of those air users that we've already identified. Brilliant. And that's kind of what we would do for most sort of significant changes anyway, isn't it? So keeping to the process we would do. So that's great and very exciting. And hopefully we'll see some good progress and people can start doing these things safely. So once the consultation we were just talking to Callum about there is live, we will put a link to it in the notes for this podcast. We're keen to hear from everybody involved, affected, airspace users, etc. So please, if you have a view, put it through the consultation. So thank you, Callum. I'm sure you'll keep us posted on this one and we'll come back and talk about it again once the, the consultation's finished and we've got other things to say on it and hopefully introducing it in the future. If there's anything you'd like us to cover on this podcast or you've got any views or anything really for us at all on the drone safety world, then drop us a line. The email is dronepodcast at cia.co.uk. And thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is CAA Drone Safety.